Purple Elephant Shower Thought of the Day. What if our use of emojis becomes so extensive that we actually revert back to using hieroglyphics? This is Purple Elephant Radio, where we hear about storytelling, originality, and creativity from the creators who are actually making something matter. I'm your host, Sean Green. This summer, I've been working on a big project, a book, a book for creatives, for artists, for content creators. This book is called The Purple Elephant Artist, art and essays for creatives. With the help of some wonderful people, Sveta Wannenberg, Jada Bennett, and Olivia Childs, we have made something awesome. You know, I think there are an abundance of online courses and books that revolve around teaching specific skills whether it's marketing tactics or actual techniques when it comes to creative mediums. But what I think is underrated is the mindset behind creativity, the psychology, the philosophy, the why of why we create. So really what this whole book is revolving around is what are the mindset shifts you need to make? What are the questions you need to ask yourself? The questions only you can answer. Your original work without feeling like you have to mimic someone. My whole intention for this thing is to prove to you that you are capable of creating, of being creative. And I hope that it will inspire you to create your own brand, your own art, your own stories. So please check the link in the description, go on Amazon, either pre-order or order that book, depending on when you're hearing this. And I promise you it will be worth your while. Today's guest is a man of many hats, from comedy to volunteering to piano to coding to just being a absolutely to just having a contagious passion for learning about art or technology or philosophy or truly anything. Um, he recently began a blog focused on art through its many eras and recently started a podcast called The Lit Cast, which is focusing more on literature through its many different eras and in throughout the ages. Um, but I know him as Mr. Funny Stand-Up Guy, and I'm here with Felix Wong. Welcome to the show. Uh, happy to be here, Sean. Uh, yeah, I guess I am a man of many hats. I like to do a whole lot of things. I know. I, I was uh, getting your bio together, and I'm like, I don't know what to say because there's still stuff I'm leaving out, and maybe we'll talk about it because I, I know you through comedy – and it was only more recently that I kind of learned that you had all these other passions, everything I just listed, plus more stuff, the stuff that I like stuff that I couldn't include. But I just want to know, was there ever a time where you kind of have you always been a very curious guy, always wanting to learn about every little thing? Or was there kind of like a a point of decision, whether in high school or college, where you're like, I'm just going to start being hungry for learning? Well, Sean, uh, definitely when I was growing up, I used to pigeon myself into a specific interest. I used to basically just read books all day. All I did was read a lot of books, read a lot of literature. And when I got to the sixth grade, um, this is kind of an amusing story. Uh, one of my friends, who's the class comedian, moved out of my class. So I was like, oh, no, somebody needs to step up and be the new comedian. And so that's how I grew into comedy. 
And then when it comes to art, I remember going to museum when I was in high school, um, I believe the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And I saw these amazing paintings and I was like, hey, why don't I get into art too? And as for piano, when I was six years old, I started playing piano and I played more and more. So I wouldn't say there was a point of decision. I would say more things just added up over time to where I am now. I'm still learning new hobbies and I'm still learning new interests. And, you know, I'm still kind of growing as a person in terms of what I enjoy and what I find fascinating. Oh, yeah. And would you say right now you're more into kind of the learning about classic art, learning about classic literature, and maybe stepping away from other interests? Or is it everything's kind of coming together now um, and just adding on top? Or do you ever kind of leave one interest alone for a while to focus on another? Well, I would say that I leave interest primarily because, you know, I want to give them some time to mature and develop over time. Um, for example, I've recently been taking a break from doing some of my piano work personally, since I've been doing that for almost 15, 16 years at this point. And I've been looking at a lot of art and literature. And when I come back to piano, I know that that's influences from those can help improve myself in piano. So I guess it's really important to just like take what you can from other things you're interested in and apply them to other things. I'm so glad you hit on that almost immediately because I think one thing that strikes me with all your interest is the amount of opportunities you have for combinational creativity where you know, you're finding a, an interest in old literature and you're finding something in a book and somehow you can take this with your knowledge of say coding or piano and kind of bring these elements together that have never been combined. So I think you're a perfect example of what it, what requires or what's required to be creative is having many interests and not feeling pigeonholed into one theme, one category. But I guess I kind of want to talk about, so from what I saw, your major is IT with uh, a minor in English. Is that right? Yes. Oh, I'm actually so, adding. I'm actually upgrading it to a major in English, possibly pretty soon. Uh, oh, okay. Back, but um, yeah, that's correct. So I'm wondering how the combination of of those two elements have played, or I, I guess helped you in what you're doing now with the website you're building, the the blogs you're doing. I mean, did you code the website? I guess that's my first question. Uh, I used WordPress, which uh, doesn't okay. involve too much coding, but I could have done it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think the important thing is that, you know, we live in a very interconnected world where nothing really sort of exists in a vacuum anymore. You know, if you read a book, you can read it online and it can be integrated with some other services through the internet. If you find a piece of art, you can do this augmented reality stuff where you project it in your room. Um, basically the intersection of these classical studies and the new world of technology is something that I've always been kind of fascinated by. And so I take my interest in that and I apply them to my personal hobbies as well to try and kind of broaden the medium I'm working with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm kind of on that same note of the website kind of being a, a newer development from what I've seen from you. What has the transition been like from, I guess, consumer of just a lot of great art, just learning a lot to actually creating something for the public. Cause I'm sure you were obviously doing, you know, papers for school 
working with teachers and students, but now that you're kind of sharing everything for anyone who wants to see it, has that experience been an odd transition or are you kind of used to it? Yeah, well, I was always kind of used to as a, a kid growing up telling everybody and anybody about my different like interests, my different hobbies and uh, all this stuff that I was fascinated by. So it's not as difficult of a transition for me personally as it might be for other people. But uh, the challenge is you learning how to like use the website to its fullest extent because there's so many tools that are available to you that I'm still kind of experimenting and tinkering on what's the best to sort of communicate my message to the audience instead of just giving it as like a big text block or something. I want to integrate multimedia. I want to integrate like images, video, like audio, like all these things that you can only do on a website. Oh yeah. And I think also making it look appealing and attractive, essentially marketing your message of just, you know, you want to educate people who maybe like, this is the impression that I get as someone who doesn't really venture into old art or, um, you know, old literature, seeing someone like you who I know, and it's like, yeah, you're a buddy of mine. We go to, uh, like, we're in the same comedy club and seeing this, and it's like, okay, I'll take an interest in it because I see someone like you, Felix, taking an interest in it. And it's kind of your identity, who you are, who I see you as, is like, hey, if Felix is in it, maybe I should take a look at it. Maybe I should hear what he's saying, his opinions. Um, but yeah, I guess, how much thought have you given to, the marketing of it in terms of like, are you actively trying to get people to look at it, read it, listen, or is it just, it's up there. If you want to look at it, look at it. In terms of marketing, I don't really feel comfortable like fully marketing yet until I know I have a product that I'm willing to let people who don't really know me can like read and consume and attract it because I'm always like wanting to seek that level of sort of perfection with what I make. And you know, to like spread something which I think is incomplete or imperfect to other people um, just sort of makes me dissatisfied. So I want to get to a certain point with this website and with this blog and this podcast where I feel like it's at a satisfactory enough level to kind of share with the wider public before I do so. So it's almost like in beta mode, essentially, where you're telling your friends about it, but not you're not going out of your way to tell people about it. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely say so because I, I'm just not really happy on like I'm I'm happy that the product exists and that I'm working on it. I'm just not really happy. I don't feel like I fully like kind of like mastered all the tools that I need to become like really sort of stand out and like unique in this sort of area. Mm -hmm. And I guess so. It is that what you're saying there that you're kind of trying to find your niche in the the world of like art history history of literature and finding what's your unique point of view what's your unique thing to say yeah am i getting that right yeah yeah because there's there's so many bloggers out there there's so many bloggers and there's so many podcasters there for everything you look up like art or literature or science or any of that and you'll get like a hundred thousand podcasts you know i want to be the one podcast or that one blog that does something different from all the others you know it doesn't have to be something like massive but it could be something small just to differentiate myself from this large kind of crowd. Mm -hmm. And do you think you've found that or is it you're sharing, you're, you're doing your thing now and you'll eventually figure it out as you move along? I would say- Do you have like a inkling of what you think it might be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say that I'm slowly starting to gain a perspective 
uh, my perspective is somebody who's not like a professional, who's not like the greatest expert or who's like the most proficient, but somebody who's like maybe more of a casual, like everyday person. Like, you know, I kind of want to see myself as talking directly to the audience as sort of like a friend instead of like a professor or a teacher. And that's sort of the niche that I want to find. And I think a lot of my work in other areas like comedy have helped me develop that more social feeling. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great example of where like a element from something completely different, completely different kind of helps you in this area, because that was one of my questions, kind of one of my questions was when you're writing about all this like classic art um, that I think and I don't think this is like I think for the masses, just the way our culture has evolved, people look at that in a, I guess, like a, a boring light or like, uh, this is old school. I don't really want to watch this, look at this. And what you're saying of finding that casual feel, finding that social feel is really interesting. But I wonder how, I guess, for like a, a, an average Joe or an average Jane, how important is it to look at the classics and learn about the classics? Well, I would say that in terms of learning of classics, you know, it's it's really important to just learn more about the world around you. Even if you have no interest in art, even if you have no liter interest in literature, you know, learning this stuff can't hurt you. It's only going to grow your mind and, you know, make you better. Like uh, for me personally, like if I find something interesting, it doesn't really matter what it's about because it's still interesting. So I want to make this interesting beyond just being about like art you know I want somebody to see this and see like oh maybe this isn't interesting because it's art but they read a little bit and they find it interesting you know in spite of the fact that it's about a topic that they don't normally care about like I just want it to be interesting regardless and I wonder just when it comes to creators content creators on the whole um do you think that moving forward into the future part of their role is going to be making things interesting because i mean just right now with the way everything's digital everything essentially could be found or somehow like you know we could collect enough resources online and figure stuff out but right now we kind of need people to curate i mean the the content creator's role is to kind of curate what they think is interesting and somehow persuade the audience member that it's for uh interesting too do you think that's kind of your role do you think about that consciously or is that kind of a surface or under the the radar thing yeah i kind of think of myself as like a librarian with a gigantic pile of books just a gigantic pile of books all strewn everywhere tossed on the floor and that's kind of the internet that's what i was that's like i'm trying to explore to find a topic and my goal as a librarian is to take one of those books the best book and present it to a way to other people. You know, you don't just want somebody to walk into that pile of strewn books and like not really know what they're doing. So I kind of want to act as like that medium in that way. I want to act as that medium and give them the absolute best of what there is to offer. Yeah. And while we're, I want to keep on the topic just for one more question of art and kind of classic literature. Do you ever, dabble in any of that yourself or is it more you like talking about it you like giving your perspective on what already exists because i know you do piano but for more uh painting and in writing 
Well, yeah, I, I do write a bit. I do write a bit. I'm not, and I'm not really the greatest artist, so that's not something I explore. But I think those interests like lie outside of my criticism sort of thing. Like they're in a different sphere. You know, I have a different mind when it comes to writing a story, when it comes to reading or like analyzing a story. So like, I guess it doesn't really exist in like the same space of my brain. Yeah, I completely understand that kind of the the critic role versus the the creator role, because I wonder, you know, if you were trying to write your own story and you had the same critical eye that you might look at classic literature with, you'd never get anywhere and you kind of get stuck in that perfectionist mindset. Yeah, exactly. You know, the critic part of myself and the writer part of myself exist as separate entities. And if they come together, it usually can does not end well. Yeah. And this is kind of a maybe an interesting transition, but uh, for one of the solo episodes I recently did about AI, one of the things that I came across was when uh, like a machine was learning how to make contemporary abstract art, one of the systems they came up with, and I, I describe it more in detail, so I may be butchering the, the description, but they essentially created two machines, one that was that critic role and could judge compared to other art, how you know good it was, and they found a way to quantify that. And then the other role was just the machine that creates and makes random art that hopefully is in a line with stuff. And it was the combination of those two that made it successful. And it was essentially modeling from the human brain that we do have the, the critic role and the, the creator role in both of us. So that's my transition to talking about technology and, and AI. And I wonder, and machine learning, I want to know what's been your kind of, what's when you, as you learn about that, because I do know that you have learned about that, what strikes you as interesting? What strikes you as scary? And what strikes you as hopeful in the world of artificial intelligence? In terms of artificial intelligence, I've, I've definitely been working with a lot of artificial intelligence things. And we could do so much with the current like AI models we have now. We can replicate a dead rapper to sing a new song. We can like create an entire novel, you know, based on just a few lines. You know, we can... Um, we can create like basically anything. We can create a whole new face that hasn't even existed. We can, we can create like a piece of like art. Like we can create like, you know, a house design. Like basically possibilities are endless with what can be generated with artificial intelligence. But my personal like thought and like fear is like, you know, creation has to have a purpose. You know, a machine can learn from a human brain, but there is ideas that go inside of a work which can't really be replicated. When it comes to that abstract art example you're talking about, you know, there's a difference between making a piece of art randomly and, you know, you have someone like Jackson Pollock whose art also seems random, but it's imbued with this purpose, this history, and this like kind of like flowing of artistic expression that machines can't really replicate. My, my big hope for artificial intelligence ultimately is not as like artificial intelligence as creators, but like as assistance to creators, because I think that artificial intelligence can provide the inspiration for artists who are struggling or have writer's block or anything, because they can give you sort of that outline or that framework to make something even better. Um, yeah, you can already see it, you know, happening. So uh, that's the yeah. Yeah, and I feel like on that note of, you know, them, of an artificially intelligent machine, something giving us kind of options and letting us pick that to me, I'm, I instantly think of 
the idea of collage art. And that's one of my, I love making collage art. It's easy. You don't really like, you can't have writer's block or creator's block with collage art because just find a new picture to add to it. And I wonder just the idea of collaging. Do you think more mediums might look like that where maybe there's a few sentences and you're picking the best one and essentially each sentence, each element is like an element in a, a work of collage art. Do you see that kind of being a, a trend that could happen for other mediums? Yeah, I see a lot of like works as a possibility of becoming more multi-layered and integrated with technology. You know, the easiest example I can think of is like a film that's like a choose your own adventure film and that's catered towards each audience or a computer game whose artificial intelligence adapts you specifically as a player. Like I can see a lot more art becoming this sort of like in-depth kind of like um, has like a lot of like different personalization stuff to it, sort of like a collage as you mentioned. So in that case, it would almost be more designed for the the consumer, the audience member, rather than the you know creator behind it. If it's something like that, where it's a choose your own adventure, personalized for the person using it, do you think? Because this is one of the things that I heard on the level of when a AI machine makes art, you know, the critics got really angry or just kind of really didn't receive it because of the point you made earlier about um, not feeling like, you know, there's an element missing that they didn't have a purpose for making it. Someone coded them, but the that machine never would have made it otherwise. Do you think it outweighs the, the, the negative side of it of like, why is it doing it? Why is it trying to take away from creatives if it, you know, it helps the, the audience member, the, the consumer somehow? Do you think there's that pro-con kind of thing to shoot for in regards to that like i think it's important to like how the artist uses the artificial intelligence really to connect with the audience you know kind of like the artificial um, intelligence acts as a link between the audience and the artist to like kind of convey the purposes so i don't think artificial intelligence by itself can ever really replicate that like art feeling because it doesn't have meaning, but if it's used to enhance that meaning by connecting with the consumer better, then I think that's the perfect use of the technology. Okay, yes, I get what you're saying there. I really like that. Sorry, excuse me, <laughs> burped. Um, one of the other uh, uses I've seen of AI very recently is in kind of copywriting for marketing. And that kind of is a transition to the idea of the misuses of AI where it's getting used to kind of create political propaganda and really divide people and pull them to extremes. Do you think that there's a, a way to counteract that? Is that just going to be a matter of people needing to understand that AI can be convincing as a, a, a human through text? And we just need to accept that we have to be kind of skeptical of any kind of extreme idea. Like, I, I guess what I'm asking, is there a workaround? I mean, something we can be aware of to avoid this. Yeah, well, I think something that we can use in terms of detecting this kind of artificial intelligence stuff is really counteracting it with other, other artificial intelligence, like ideas. You know, the best way to sort of curb the technology is to use the technology itself. Because, you know, there are ways to like detect if something is like created by artificial intelligence. Um, kind of, it's like how we use that technology to stop itself, really. 
um, you don't really have to put like an arbitrary or, or restriction on it because I feel like naturally there becomes ways inside the system to change it. Yeah. I'm wondering, can you draw a parallel in history where say there was some jump in technology and security elements followed that because of it? I mean, something like the car or, you know, when how, like, I, is there an example that maybe might help a, a listener kind of make the connection there? Like maybe credit cards? I'm just trying to spitball. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of examples. And, you know, I think a lot of people, I think for any technology, like there will become restrictions, like a car, you know, people, like there became more and more traffic crashes and fatalities. People were like, oh no, more, pe more people are going to die in these traffic crashes. So the automobile naturally, you know, started developing more like seatbelt technology and airbags and so those sort of things. And I think that kind of like, thing can apply to artificial intelligence. You can find ways using artificial intelligence and working inside there to kind of like curb it and make it safer for everybody. Yeah, yeah, I definitely see that. That's a good uh, connection. That's what, exactly what I was looking for. I want to transition away from AI, but still just stay in the, the, the realm of technology for a little bit. Because I saw on your website that you were into 3D printing or at least developing 3D stuff. Because from what I've read, it's it really is going to. I mean, once someone makes it go mainstream, there's going to be no looking back. I'm wondering what are all the uses for 3D printing in the the near future and the the long term future. Well, in terms of the accessibility of 3D printing, it's already becoming much much better than before. You know, it was like five six years ago when a 3D printer would cost like thousands of dollars. But nowadays you can get a 3D printer for less than a phone and the materials that you need for a 3D printer are actually very cheap. So it's, it's becoming accessible to more people. In terms of like um, near stuff, like there's just so much stuff that you can do with 3D printing, it's insane. You know, One thing I saw is that you actually, is that you can start to 3D print houses. There's a 3D printed house in Arizona that's entirely constructed out of those materials. And, you know, that's where we're at now. You can, like, sort of, like, start, like, constructing and, like, building, you know, artificial things. Like, you know, you can start 3D printing car parts. You can start 3D printing, like, maybe furniture and stuff like that. But in the future, what I'm particularly interested in is 3D printing, you know, to help us directly. So a very, very future thing is 3D printing organs. So we wouldn't have to worry about transplants anymore because we could kind of, like, create our own organs, and that could help us like live longer and those sort of things. But yeah, in terms of like 3D printing, you know, the, the sky is the limit in terms of what can happen as the technology continues to improve. Mm -hmm. And just, I want to make the connection between 3D printing and, and art. I mean, right now, most mediums that people express themselves through art, I mean, I feel like sculptures and ceramics are kind of that offshoot of a 3D medium, but most of it painting, uh, collaging everything digital is 2d right now do you think that there would be an explosion at some point where there's a massive transition to 3d or will the will there always be a place for two-dimensional art the same way literature's always existed even though we have movies now you know I, I think this is kind of like um the argument between 2d animated movies and 3d animated movies you know, when Pixar came out with Toy Story, a lot of people thought, oh, 3D animation is going to be entirely the future. We're going to see all movies from now on use this sort of technology. 
And obviously we have seen more 3D animation take the case, but you still see a lot of traditional 2D animation have its niche in the market. People still want 2D animation, just how they want practical effects over CGI. So there's always going to be a market for 2D paintings and 2D art. You know, it may not necessarily be as large or as like influential as 3D art might be, but it's still going to be there and it's still going to be like important. Yeah. And that just sparked a, a thought I had about, and I don't know if you want to get into this, how much you know about it, but NFTs, I'm curious. And this kind of goes back to the, what we were talking about with the traditional art, where all that art is so valuable because it's, I mean, you can tell me probably why it's valuable, but I would say a lot of it is because of how rare it is. And just knowing the history of these people, it's very hard to, you know, you can't replace it. And maybe AI will be able to replicate it, but it's, you know, that was a moment in time. Um, when we have an explosion where everyone can create, everyone can make, and the tools for making and sharing are pretty, the threshold is very low. Um, and so essentially there's this abundance of creativity online. Do you think NFTs are just a fad or are they going to be the next thing in like the economics of art? I, I, I always felt that NFTs kind of go fundamentally against the principle of the internet because the internet, it's like a place where you share things. Like, you know, think of how a meme like grows and like changes over time, like organically, like to share a piece on the internet is sort of to give yourself that freedom of you're sharing it with other people for them to spread it around and then to spread it around and it could grow and morph and kind of evolve. I think that NFTs try to bring that traditional art into the digital internet world. And I don't, I think that's the wrong approach for both sides because traditional art, it's great because it's rare because there's only a few in copies out there autographed. And the internet is great because you can share whatever piece of art or whatever video or whatever like media thing that you want to share with other people. You know, neither of them are bad, but like if you, you know, you wouldn't want to like forge a bunch of like paintings and spread them all around. That would be wrong. And for the internet, like you wouldn't want to just give a video to like one person. Yeah. And I almost think for NFTs, I mean, there's obviously some kind of sketchy stuff on the buyer's side, but I think that one of the thinkings, one of the like school of thoughts goes for it for the creator who only makes digital how are they ever going to make a living even if they have millions of followers and they just aren't really able to capitalize in the way that a traditional artist might? Do you think for them it's just, sorry, you chose digital. That's the medium you chose. Don't try to make uh, scarcity. Or is it make sense in certain cases I, like I think for we, the, the creator? I think we can find like in more innovative ways to make money. Is, is what I'm saying. You know, we have things like Patreon, we have like fundraisers, Kickstarters, commissions, all these sort of things. I, I think if you want a piece of art on the internet to be private, then you keep it private. You keep it, you know, shared only among like you and whoever is commissioning it. And if you want a piece of art to be public and free to everybody, then you share it and you have it free to private. You can't really have like, I guess, like an in-between where you have a piece of like public art that's also like priced. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. And you mentioned Patreon as kind of a innovative way for those people to earn a living. And I, I definitely agree with you. Do you think that there's going to be more 
innovations in that area of how a creative can sustain themselves because, and maybe we can riff on this a little bit, but I kind of see creativity. I mean, that will be one of the last things to be automated in the way that we talked about where maybe we're the chooser and not necessarily creating individual pieces. But I really do think most of the other jobs are going to slowly become automated and an AI will be able to do it better. So with that, because I'm arguing that creativity is kind of going to be one of the last things, last thresholds, um, are there going to be innovative ways for people to make a living doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any like in an ideal world, I would do it like this. Like, do you have any thoughts around that? Um, in an ideal world for me, um, a piece of internet art is created and the artist is like kind of paid for it, but can also choose to distribute it or not. Like, you know, I, I think there's so many ways to like have this payment model and like have it like be like adaptable to the world that we live in now, rather than like the old world of, you know, you give money for this and then you get the copy like it's you know it's a different world and you know stuff like blockchain obviously can kind of give you a more like different perspective and i I don't know like the ways that payment models are going to work in the future but i just know that people are going to keep trying to create better ways for artists to get compensated because that's been obviously a big problem with digital art throughout the ages and Mm. yeah and do you have a thought on that what i said earlier about kind of everything trending towards creativity oh yeah i think like i said creativity um it's something that's sort of irreplaceable you know artists have always existed since the dawn of time and i think that they'll always exist until the end of time because you know what they do is a product of their own mind it can't really be replicated in the same way like i don't know like a fast food job can be replicated because the purposes behind art is individual to them and them alone yeah and i kind of want to touch on one more thing before we maybe move away from technology or maybe we go way deeper into it but do you think uh an artificially intelligent being will one day become conscious and do you think we would be able to comprehend it or do you think it would be so above anything that we could understand I, I think that it's it's a slow evolution process of an artificial intelligence. You're probably not going to see an AI instantly become like conscious and like superhuman. You're gonna see AI like we do now slowly becoming like smarter and smarter, like like a human, like a baby in that sense. You know, maybe in time it becomes faster and faster at learning, but it's still going to be a process. And I think it's important that we catch it during that process before it gets to that stage where we can't comprehend it so you're saying well because i think at some point it it may i mean definitely just the way things are trending it will get to that point where we can't stop it but we i don't think anyone can answer is that point of no return going to mean that we're screwed or are we going to be somehow a cyborg thing where you know the ai is in us and it's burrowed into our brain and not in a scary way but we did that we controlled it we understood it and maybe we're you know felix 2.0 sean 2.0 you know we're not even going to be able to understand like the way we're talking now we wouldn't even understand it do you think that cyborg model might exist or is it going to be a kind of a all right goodbye humanity (laughs) I think the former model is most likely what's going to happen. 
obviously we can't know the future, but um, there's always been fears of technology overtaking the ability of humans to do what they do. And throughout history, we've seen that we found ways to coexist with machines and make them sort of work like along with us. And AI obviously poses the most difficult question of all is how do we deal with something that is as intelligent as we are? But I think ultimately the best solution, and I think the one we'll find is to integrate it with us like perfectly, maybe not in a cyborg model, but in a different way can let us like accomplish things that have previously been impossible or unattainable by somebody who wasn't able to harness this. Oh yeah. And I think one of the interesting things that really fascinates me about this idea of if AI becomes conscious is this idea of different emergent behaviors, because would AI even need emotions? Was that integral to, you know, how we are now? Or could there be a jump where, you know, it gets this executive thinking, kind of where we are right now, kind of skips all the, the basic stuff. And what would that look like? You know, if one of the arguments I made in the episode that I did about it, I essentially said, you know, if a AI was designed to make art, and that was its original purpose, what would emerge from that if our original purpose was survive, and we ended up making art, you know, what's that jump um, beyond which we can't even really know. Uh, um, yeah. But I, yeah, touch on that. And then I'll, I'll transition. Yeah, um, and I think that's kind of the exciting part of AI is that we don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes, uh, yeah, sorry. Sometimes I think the fear of the unknown can kind of consume us um, because we're scared of, oh, Skynet's going to destroy the whole world. We're going to be destroyed. Everything is going to be bad. But, you know, my view of AI is that it's going to become sort of like, like, like maybe like an animal species at our intelligence level. You know, we might not be able to understand it, but we can see what it does and we kind of try to like deduce it. So, you know, I don't necessarily think that it's going to like cause the end of humanity. I just think it means that we have to sort of live in a society where there are things that are equal, if not better than us in terms of intelligence. And the important thing is how we deal with that and how we adapt to it. Mm -hmm. And I want to transition, Felix, to what can feel like the end of the world, which is performing for the first time and stage fright and dealing with things that a comedian, a performer must experience at some point in their life and talk about, well, two things, because maybe you can talk about, you know, when you got into stand-up comedy, why you got into stand-up comedy, but I also want to hear, was there ever a moment, a, a hurdle that you had to jump that was related to anxiety or, or kind of overwhelming thoughts when it came to performing? Because that to me was one of the biggest hurdles I overcame in my life. Oh, yeah. Um, definitely when I was a lot younger in my teenage years, one of the biggest frights I had was performing. I was always kind of shivering, I could, stammering, like couldn't remember my lines and all those sort of things. And I think there came a certain point when I was about to do performance and I just kind of thought like, okay, who am I doing this for? Am I doing it for them or am I doing it for myself? And my goal when I performed is, you know, I care about the audience, but also I care about like how about myself, I guess. Like, so I kind of just thought of like, it doesn't matter what the audience thinks as long as I'm satisfied with how I do personally. Like, 
And so that kind of like takes away a bit of the fear of performance. If you sort of treat the audience as a second tier importance and treat how you do and how you feel as the number one priority. Well, so I'm curious when you were just at that stage before you kind of ask yourself those questions and we're still very nervous about it. You had that underlying desire to perform and be a performer. I'm wondering, because obviously you did have that because you continued to perform and, and got over your fears, but was that desire coming stemming from, I feel like this is a, a calling or a bigger purpose, or was it like, this is a fear. I'm going to overcome my fear just because I, you know, I want to overcome it. I think for me, performance represents like, one of the best things you can do with an artistic form. I always saw performance as this big thing, like, wow, performing, like, that's like presenting yourself out there. Like, I, I thought like performing was like one of the highest things you could do. Like, you know, you can obviously like read a play, but like, it's nothing compared to performing a play. You can write a script for a stand-up set, but, you know, performing that stand-up set, to me, like performing felt like a goal. It's like, I want to perform someday. And you know, like obviously I struggled a lot with actually doing the process of performing, but the idea of performing was always sort of existed in that romantic state in my head. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I would have been able to say it like that, but I, I do think I had a, a similar feeling because I can definitely um, empathize with your story of high school. High school, Sean would not perform, would not get up on a stage for any reason. Um, and it was kind of that transformation. Um, in college that made me comfortable and, and love doing this and realizing that this is great. So if anyone's afraid to perform, it is a worthy goal to, to reach for and to hit that goal, which you have. Um, so on that note of performing and comedy, I want to hear with stand-up comedy, how would you describe your style and Kind of what are the themes that you come back to again and again in your comedy? Well, I think the thing I want to do with my comedy is I want to like endear myself to the audience. I want to talk like we're sitting by a fireplace late at night and I'm just talking to them and I'm telling them jokes and I'm telling them stories. You know, I want to make it seem like I'm their friend in that way because I, I, I've never been a fan of the detached comedian who just talks about their own life in a way that doesn't really seem like communicative to other people. I never, I never really thought that was funny because as an audience member, how do I relate to this person? Like, I, I don't really get it because they're just telling me these like small little anecdotes. Um, and I, I keep coming to these like themes that, that everybody experiences. I, I talk about like, you know, loneliness, confusion, just like sort of these awkward situations that, we all find ourselves in and like I I, I I like to like give it in a way that's like people think that could have been me if I was in that situation and I can like know what it's like to be in his shoes mm -hmm. and I'm wondering kind of going full circle with what we talked about at the very beginning of this does any of the stuff that you learn about with you know classic art and classic literature have you ever taken inspirations from it and brought it into stand-up Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, definitely with art, I, I think I've learned a lot about how to communicate to a person, just the way that, just kind of like the way that like in literature you can communicate to somebody in like that more direct fashion, in that kind of like 
more like an endearing, like warm feeling. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of art that can be cold and like dry and like kind of just like a picture. And I've also seen a lot of art that makes you feel like you're in the scene, that makes you feel like you're there and you're part of it. And that's the kind of like vision that I have for my stand-up. I want to be like, if I'm in, I want to be in the audience sitting with these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we've really hit on the notes of art and technology pretty heavily. Um, and I think seeing someone like you, you're clearly an embodiment of what happens when you love and learn about both. And it's not a cold robotic thing. It's something warm. Um, and that combination is, I think what I kind of want to strive for and be like, let, why not have science and art? Why not love both of them equally, or at least care about them and give them their, their place. Um, but moving forward for you, Felix, for your future, not necessarily about the big abstract future, but I know you want to go to law school. Um, but the fact that you're doing all this creative stuff, I wonder, I, I guess a, a two, two part question. Um, maybe you can explain why law school and why you're really into that. And do you have, do you want to continue to be a creative individual, uh, expressing yourself in different creative ways is there any like big goals i guess creatively speaking that you have well uh something i'm probably going to be considering with law school is i'm considering doing law school as well as a phd in something like english or literature um in order to blend my topics but for me i've always loved to like write i've always loved to read things and uh, I don't know, <laughs> going to law school is something where I can actually like do both, um, thankfully. And I, I like the idea of like being a communicator. Um, that's something that's always appealed to me. And in terms of staying a creative individual, um, for me, it's just like, you know, how I balance all these things, piano, comedy, science, all these things. I think that's the story of like, also like me in the future like how to balance, you know, law and like all of this stuff. And I just think of law as just another thing under my belt, along with art and literature. And I have to approach that the way I approach like a new hobby in that way. I need to find a way to focus on it and like enjoy it and like learn it. And also at the same time, indulge my other things, you know? So yeah, I want to keep being a creative individual and I want to keep all the stuff I have while also like adding something new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in terms of the, the big creative project, though, I mean, is there any, you know, a, a book you want to write, a an album you one day want to release? Is there any big kind of creative goal on that level, which there, believe me, there does not need to be. But I just want to know if there's one on your mind. Something that I've always had in my mind is blending together all these things that I've been doing, art, literature, science, like into like one big project you know, a novel with a painting attached to it and with audio recordings, like something that just integrates like everything that I learned and care about into like one big thing. You know, I don't know what this is going to look like, but as I continue to like sort of like explore all these different hobbies, I'm finding ways to integrate them all together. I'm finding ways to like sort of like unite them. And I, I hopefully in the future, I come up with something that really kind of like makes it all together yeah ties everything all together in just this unified field yeah and because you have so many hobbies uh 
I kind of want to know, and this might be putting you on the spot, so don't feel like if you don't know the right answer, it's okay. But when you have a new hobby, and let's imagine there's a, a new thing, like, I don't know. I don't know if you've already gotten into cooking, but let's say cooking's a new hobby. Do you, what's the process to, I hear about this new thing to now I've really dove into this. Do you, like, if you had to say like one, two, three from not, you just kind of heard about it, but no interest to, I'm curious about it. I'm diving full in. Have you ever considered that process for yourself for a new hobby? Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to something I'm interested in, usually the first thing I do is I see what it's all about. Like, what are the good things about it? What are the difficult things about it? Like, what are the things that people love about it? Because I want to know why people like this. Why do people want to do something like cooking? And, you know, obviously the thing is, like, they want to make food. And now that I know that, I'm like, okay, so how do you make food? And so it's just like a gradual, gradual process of, like, immersing myself and this activity and like everything that surrounds it it's it's like i'm like slowly dipping into a big pool you know you start out with your little toe first then you can get a whole leg in and then maybe your torso and then then you're all kind of like immersed so that's sort of how i think about it and do you go when you start immersing yourself is it you know youtube you can get a couple bite-sized things then maybe you get a book I mean, is there like different mediums, different, maybe a podcast that you kind of go back and forth to? Like, do you have a starter medium if you're really trying to learn about something for the first time? Uh, for me, I think one of the most important things to do when learning a new hobby is to interact with people who actually do it. Like, talk to them about it. Like, ask them why they love it so much. Like, ask them what they don't love about it. Like, I think that, like, that's the best way because, like, you're really communicating with other people about this sort of like specific interest they have. You know, if someone asks me why I love art, you know, I'll tell them how I grew to love art, why I love it, like how I expressed it. And so, yeah, that's my first thing I do. I'll just like find somebody who is interested in it and I'll just talk to them all about it. Mm -hmm. And do you have a, I don't know, a a way of looking at life, a, a principle about life that really keeps you curious? Like, is there like, there's always more to learn? Is there a basic principle that you kind of have that keeps you hungry for new, new interests, new curiosities? Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, I think of myself as like, kind of like a little, like starting like a little sprout when you grow up, when you, when you're like a little small baby, you're like a sprout and you start growing and growing and you add more and more things. And, And that's what it is to me, like adding more things to like my repertoire, adding more things always growing and being better because you know stagnation breeds conformity and it breeds like just kind of like settling in the same place and I never want to settle in the same place that's my philosophy I'm always like running and I'm always like running uphill towards you know whatever it is yeah and that's what keeps you going is keeping like finding a new hill to to climb essentially yeah you know I just it's it's like you can't ever be satisfied like running on top of one hill. You have to r- run up one that's higher and higher and then you get to the mountains and so on and so forth. Yeah. And I think there are definitely two ways of looking at that and being like, oh, you're never satisfied. But the way I see that is you're always exploring something. And I, you know, there's definitely the the glass half full, glass half empty way of looking at it. And I, I can tell you see it as glass half full and I, I definitely see it the same way. Um, 
So as we wrap up this interview, I want to ask the question that I always finish my uh, interviews with is what at this moment, and it doesn't have to be cooking, are you intensely curious about right now? Well, uh, so in terms of like what I'm going to be doing for my blog next, I have um, a couple of big projects coming up, uh, especially I'm going to start being exploring like music. So, you know, something I'm actually exploring is composing my own piece of classical music and like publishing it out there um, because I want people to be more like kind of like available to like discuss like classical music and stuff. So I figured like that's a medium that I'm going to be starting to explore next is how to make music discussion something that's a lot easier for people to digest and understand in the same way that I'm trying to make art and literature also accessible. Yeah, and I think that's the, the a cool combination because you are, uh, you know, you know the piano, whereas you said, you know, you, you don't really do much with painting or drawing. Um, and so I think it's unique that you're going to have that creative side and the the uh, critic side. Um, okay, so where, what, maybe tell people your website, where they can kind of find your stuff, and it'll all be linked, but maybe new stuff that might not be out, something they should keep an eye out for? Uh, well, keep an eye out for uh, felixwong.net. Uh, that is where I keep all my blog, my podcast, and all the future stuff that's going to be coming out. Uh, make sure to check out my social media on Felix underscore key underscore Wong, my Instagram for links to like new things that I'm interested in. Um, check out my YouTube channel. It's um, I don't have the exact name off my head, but I'll, I'll, I'll give I'll it be to sure you later, Sean. Yeah. Um, because I have a couple of like videos up there too of some critical art things. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it in terms of what I have to plug. Awesome. Yeah, I'll be linking everything. Um, I really, I have really liked your podcast that you've released so far, and I'm sure by the time this gets out, you'll have more stuff, more blogs, um, and I'm just really excited to see your your journey and see how you you grow as a content creator, Felix. Of so course. thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. This has been Purple Elephant Radio. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week.